As we continue our praise and worship to God and His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, I'm going to take you to 1 Chronicles 16 as we prepare for Pastor Chris to come and open the Word with us. 1 Chronicles 16, we encounter a psalm written by King David and delivered to the Asaph, the worship leader, on the day that they brought the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem for the first time. And they placed it in the tabernacle there. I'm reading from 1 Chronicles 16, beginning in verse 23. Sing to the Lord, all the earth. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised. And he is to be feared among and above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and joy are in his place. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come before him. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him, all the earth. Yes, the word, the world is established. It shall never be moved. Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. And let them say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Well, thank you, Jim. Good morning. I bring greetings from Curtis, who is in Oklahoma with, with Canaan this weekend. Uh, and uh, a few weeks ago, when Curtis knew this weekend was coming and asked me to speak, he kind of said, I, I'm, I'm going to finish my First Corinthians study. I'm going to start a new one when you're done, so you can kind of speak on whatever you want, which is a very dangerous thing to tell a youth pastor, especially coming off of a conference. Um, but uh, as I've been thinking about it and praying about it and, and having uh, led worship here for almost 10 years, the, the, the definition and understanding of what worship is has always been something very uh, near and dear to me and something that I, I wanted to say. It's been a while since we've discussed this topic, and so uh, I, I wanted to bring that to you this morning. I believe God wanted us to, to look at this again this morning. And so whenever there's a topic to be discussed, it's a pet peeve of mine to sit under anybody's teaching and they talk about a topic, but don't define it. So Because we, we can have in a room this full uh, hundreds of different definitions of what worship is. And so I wanted to start with, with that. Webster's Dictionary says, uh, worship is to, to show honor to something or someone. Pretty generic. But as we go back to 1828, Webster has a much stronger definition at the time where he says, worship is to honor with extravagant love and extreme submission. It's a much better definition. To honor something or someone with extravagant love and extreme submission. And we can look around us and see a number of things in our society, even within our own lives, where we might say, uh, I show this person or this thing extravagant love and extreme submission. We may reset our, our schedules to catch a certain ball game later on today. We may be, be pretty quick to check our financial status in the morning. We, we may adjust what we do and, and how we say it um, based on these things. When it comes to biblical worship and what we're going to look at 
this morning in 1 Chronicles. I want to go off this definition because it's not just a generic worship. Biblical worship is saying there's one object of worship worthy of it. And so I want to go off this definition. And it's this, that all of me proclaiming the greatness of all that God is and does. The biblical worship is all of me proclaiming the greatness of all that God is and does. We were created to worship. This is a, a, a natural response uh, in, in our nature uh, that even in Isaiah 43, God tells the prophet Isaiah that these people who I have formed for myself, that they might declare my praise. So, so worshiping something is in our nature. But I want to point out in this passage, and, and again, Jim laid out the context for us well, that here's this, this 28-verse song that David writes to praise God. And if I covered all 28 verses, you'd be here much later than you probably want to be. Um, but I've picked like the second stanza of this song. So from verses 23 on, to dive into what I believe this passage is telling us, David is saying, this is what worship is. And so of those five essential elements of worship, here's the first one, that worship recognizes the greatness of God. That biblical worship recognizes the greatness of God. And just listening to the songs and singing along with the songs, there were dozens of things that we already sung about this morning, about how great God is. And in this passage, David points out a bunch. In verse 23, he says, I want you to recognize God's salvation to you. I want you to recognize in verse 24, his glory and his marvelous works In verse 26, recognize that he made the heavens, which that thought we could spend an awful long time trying to grasp the power and the creativity and the ability to create all that is in space. Verse 27, he says, recognize God's splendor, his majesty, his strength, and his joy. He's not just saying notice them, he's saying he is the epitome of these things. That there's nothing more majestic than God. There's nothing that has more splendor than God. Nothing that is full of more joy than God. Verse 29, it says, recognize and praise him for his holiness. And in verse 31, to say, the Lord reigns. Whenever we need, whenever we're thinking about worship, whenever we gather together for worship, the core of it, the foundation of it is saying we're not just here to hang out with friends. We're not just here uh, to hold a baby or to hold a door or to do anything else. We're here to be able to say, God, I recognize how great you are. And that's what brings me here to then share that with other people and to celebrate here. So worship recognizes the greatness of God. The second thing is worship proclaims. And you've done that beautifully this morning. I love being able to sit up here and hear the the people of God proclaiming his greatness. But the instructions are pretty strong right away in verses 23 and 24. You see words like sing and tell and declare. Verse 25, it says, the Lord is greatly to be praised. In verses 28 and 29, they use this word, ascribe to the Lord. To let, let everybody know how worthy God is, and he calls out the people to do so, that there's this verbal response necessary to worship God. Luke 19, uh, Jesus is, we hear this story of Jesus where it says, and Jesus was drawing near 
Already on the way down the Mount of Olives, and the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that he has done, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, and praise in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Jesus answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. That an element of worship is being able to get it out loud. This became real to me on a small scale less than two years ago. I'm a lifetime Philadelphia Eagles fan. You already know where I'm going. My grandparents were Eagles fans. My parents are Eagles fans. And so growing up, just wanting a really good thing to happen for the Eagles... So two years ago, I gather my family together, and we get with Matt and Katie, and Jeff and Katie, my, all the whole family, we're going to enjoy this Eagles game. And so the first half happens, and we're high-fiving and celebrating. It's a great half. Sorry, John Kazalka and all the Patriots fans. Um, I'm going to keep talking, and it's going to get great. So, um, so it comes to halftime, and most of us realize we still have a bunch of young kids. And at 8.30, 9 o'clock for halftime, they probably need to go to bed. So... Carrie and I get our kids and we go home, get them in bed and are ready to watch the second half. And so we let my son Wyatt stay up. He and I were enjoying the Eagles games that year. So my son and my wife and I are there in the living room and it comes, what, 11, 11, 15 and Tom Brady drops back and throws the ball up and it hits the ground and I look at the clock and there's triple zeros and there's no flags and I like, I look at my son and I go, Because I can't yell and celebrate or a lot of people who love me will be freaked out upstairs. And so I'm like, "Uh, uh, this is not enough. I've got to do more. And so I go jump on him on the couch (laughs) to try like, I I have to get this out. I've been waiting a long time for this. I'm very excited. And it wasn't until I really came to church the Monday after and saw Sharon Spruill and Sean Marconi and other Lifetime Eagles fans. I finally go, oh my goodness. Oh, that was awesome. But I couldn't get, like, there was this part of just celebrating this that just go, the fact isn't enough. There's got to be a response to it. C.S. Lewis, in his book on worship, talks about that it's a natural response to, to praise what we enjoy. But he said, I always was thinking, like, just the praise of it was just expressing my joy. So what I was missing, that the praising of it, the expressing of it, completed my joy. That it wasn't just good enough to know about it. It wasn't just good enough to say, I, I, here's a lot of good facts I'm bringing together and, and information that's good. It's going, when it becomes so good, when it becomes life-changing information, when it's something, even you go, what I have already is praiseworthy of a God and I'm going to keep learning more and keep learning more and keep experiencing more of his grace and keep experiencing more of his forgiveness. I can't help but get it out. John Piper writes that these two essentials have to play nice together. They have to work together. The truth without emotion produces dead orthodoxy and a church full of or half full of artificial admirers. But on the other hand, emotion without truth produces empty frenzy and cultivates shallow people who refuse the discipline of rigorous thought. But true worship 
as Jesus talks about in John 4, comes from people who are deeply emotional and love deep and sound doctrine. Strong affections for God rooted in truth are the bone and marrow of biblical worship. That's why I was asking you when you came in, before we started to proclaim, what is it that you can praise God for this morning? So that you can go, I'm not just going to come in and sing songs that we've sung. I'm not just going to come in and kind of walk through the worship service like we normally do. I want to be able to go, what is that What is that thing that even right now, of the hundreds of things that I can praise God for, right now I'm praising you for this, and now I get to proclaim it. Now I let to get it out, not just in song, and I appreciate that that word is in there as an instruction, but that's not the only one. It's saying tell, proclaim. The next thing I see about worship that David talks about is that worship is daily. Worship is therefore personal. We see in verse 23, he says, tell of his salvation from day to day. Not from Sunday and then the next Sunday. Tell of his salvation from day to day. This means worship is not just about what what we can kind of orchestrate and organize every Sunday. It's about going today When I wake up, I want all of me to proclaim the greatness of all that God is and does. And so this affects my outlook on life. This affects how I answer questions of my motivation, questions of my purpose, of my definition of who I am. This addresses all of that every day. And we live in a society that is trying to teach us the opposite of that. We live in a society that says in order to find those answers of value, those answers of purpose, that you need to start by looking in. All those answers are found here. And once you find uh, the, the answers to the questions you're looking for of purpose and identity and value, that then you look around you. And so you say, not just, uh, it's really one of two ways that we can look around us. We go, the answers that I've found, how do I sort of filter them or present them in such a way that those currently around me will applaud and celebrate? Or secondly, if that's really not an option, how do I surround myself with people that will celebrate the answers I've found? And then if I want to pursue extra help there, then I might look up. Then I I might try and go, God, can you just sort of sprinkle a blessing on my answers that I've found? And we find this, this philosophy, the easiest way to illustrate it is by looking at Every graduation speech in the last 10 years at high school or college, the top five sentences or phrases used in graduation speeches are these. Believe in yourself. Follow your heart. You be you. You recognize your greatness because you control your destiny. Have we heard these? We hear them a lot. We hear them everywhere. Where does it start? starts right here. That I decide what my passions are. I decide what my identity is. I decide what my heart is telling me to do. Now, a biblical approach to life, a, a, a biblical daily surrender to life can be found in two verses that we teach our children. The two verses you may know from, from a long time of growing up in church of Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. It says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and don't lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. Well, as nice as those other phrases sounded, I want you to see those phrases set up right next to Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. 
You see the danger in that now? It's saying the exact opposite. It's saying a biblical daily approach to life is not looking in, it's looking up first. Saying, I need, to, I need to trust you with today. I need to trust you with my passions and my identity. I find my identity and my value and my motivation in you. So that when I look around me, I'm not going, how does this fit and how do they applaud me? I'm looking at them going, the, the grace you've given me, how do I show that to them? The love you've given to me, how do I love my neighbor? How do I love my enemy? That all the things you're teaching me to do, how do I take your truth and be light in a dark world? So by the time I finally get to me, I'm not worried about, I don't like this, God, I don't like this. I'm going, God, because of all this stuff you've shown me, how does it change what's in me? Not have me decide how I move forward. If we're willing to agree with the world that we need to believe in ourselves and follow our heart and you just be you, if we're trying to lead a generation to worship biblically, those are the five worst things you can tell a human being. We have to be worshiping God daily because in a society that, that Monday through Friday at work, Monday through Friday in classes, uh, Monday through Friday in, in, in all of the advertising and in, in everything out there is saying, no, this is how you need to see life, that if we only focus on biblical worship on Sunday, which one is going to feel more awkward? Which one is going to feel more uncomfortable and just not right? The right one. But imagine if every day we said, God, I'm going to look up first. God, today is a day that I'm committing to you, that today I want to worship you. I want all of me to proclaim the greatness of who you are so that by the time I get to Sunday, boy, do I have a story to be able to share with the rest of you. Boy, do I have a God who I can proclaim and go, right now I can answer that, that I praise you today because you've shown me this all week and I can't wait to tell people. And then let that spill over into not just telling the people in this room but the people that we encounter throughout the week. It's not just something that we gather together to do. It's got to be personal. But now that I say that, it's got to be congregational as well. The fourth point is the worship is congregational. This is your gathering together. That to just individually say, this is what I'm praising God for. God did not design us to be a silo or on our own island. He says, I, I want you to celebrate in the congregation Verse 24 says, declare his glory among the nations. Declare his mighty works among all the people. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the people. Now I want to try something. Can you humor a youth pastor here for a second? Let's try something that we don't normally do here at Ogletown. And I'm going to ask you to respond to something, okay? So like, let that sink in for a minute and we can do this. Okay. At the beginning of the service, I asked you to finish a sentence. God, this morning I praise you because what I want to do is I'm going to say that sentence again, but when I stop saying because, I want to ask you to say your answer. Realize you're like, oh no, he called us on it. I need an answer to that. So I'm going to give you a minute if you're like, let me make sure I know how I would say this. Well, while you're thinking through that, I want to address those in the room who are going, I'm here, but I'm not totally sure I would answer that sentence just yet. I'm not totally sure that, that I'm, I'm buying into the, the Jesus thing. 
uh, I would encourage you, you don't have to say anything back. But I would encourage you to focus on listening to what you hear. Can we try this, church? Okay. So God, this morning, I praise you because... Awesome. Let's do it again. God, this morning, I praise you because... How many of you heard something that you said you heard somebody else say? How many of you heard a lot of noise? Okay. That's okay. What we just did demonstrates a lot of things of why worship needs to be congregational. The first is this, that there are hundreds of things that we can be praising God for. Because maybe you didn't hear everybody, but you might have heard the person next to you or the person behind you, and they might have been all different things. That we don't serve a God that's good at three things. We serve a God that's good at thousands of things. He's made immeasurable promises. He's, his attributes are listless. That God is at work in different ways, in different stages of life, in different genders, in different nationalities, in different challenges and blessings. So for the victorious Christian in the room who has something to celebrate that's provided you an opportunity to celebrate out loud what God is doing. For the believer who's been battling, struggling, hurting. This is the assurance and the encouragement that God is still at work and that he's good. And that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. Because you needed to hear what somebody else was saying. And they needed to hear you say it. To the searcher who is in the room who is still trying to figure out what God is all about. This demonstrates that there's a personal God. Who not only knows what we're going through but is actively involved in each story. And this God knows everything you're going through and offers you the same personal relationship. We have to come together to worship as a congregation. We can celebrate with those who celebrate. We can mourn with those who mourn. But we come together because God is good. And we need to keep doing that. It's why Hebrews even says, don't neglect this. Because you need it and other people need you. It's an element, a key element of worship. The last one, the fifth one I want to get to in this passage is not exhaustive, but this is certainly one that it calls us out to. It says, worship is sacrifice. Worship is sacrifice. Verse 29 says, ascribe to the Lord the glory do his name and bring an offering. How you do that, how you show God that he's worthy of this praise is that you're bringing something. It's why we include an, a taking of the offering in our worship service. It is an act of worship. But it's more than just our money. See, in the Old Testament times, as they would have flocks, the, the sacrifice that God called for was, was for a lamb or a goat or a certain livestock, or even birds, whatever you had in particular for certain things, God would call you to, to give those. But if you were a, a sheep herder, as many were, where your value and your status uh, within your community rested on, on your quality of sheep, that a lamb that came and was born, that that, that was something incredibly valuable. 
And what God asked for you to sacrifice was a spotless lamb, was a lamb without blemish, was one that wasn't sick, one that wasn't lame, wasn't blind, wasn't always running off to get stuck in a thicket. He wanted the spotless lamb. Which if you're a sheep herder, the more I thought about it, like the big sheep mean you can eat this week. The lamb means I can eat in a year. It means I've got some stability. I've got some things that I've got big plans for you. And if you're going to be healthy, and if you're not going to run off, and you're going to be something that I can continue to watch over, then this is something incredibly valuable to me. So when God is asking for an offering, he's not saying, yeah, just take one of these lame ones. Take one of the ones that's going to get picked off easy. He's saying, I want what you're holding on to and protecting. I want the last thing you're willing to give up to me. In Isaiah 29, God tells the prophet Isaiah, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. That they recognize I'm great and they tell me and they do it in a congregation and they do it by themselves, but they're not giving anything up. They're not changing anything. Psalm 51, David writes this, for you will not delight in animal sacrifice or I would give it. You're not pleased with the burnt offering. You don't love dead livestock. That's not the point of the sacrifice. So the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and repentant heart, O God. That you won't despise. That is what you're asking for. And Romans 12, 1 and 2 calls us. Paul says, I I appeal to you by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. That's your acceptable act of worship. Not just the words, not just the showing up. But what is it in you that you're going, I'm gonna, I want to hold on to that? Because when our passion for a pursuit of holiness trails off, so does our quality of worship. When we go, I think I've given God enough. There's still some stuff I'm holding on to, but He's got most of me, He's done a lot of work. We're not called, to, like most of us, proclaiming the greatness of God, we're called for all of us to do so. Because if there's a part that I'm still holding on to, but I'm going, God, you reign, one of those two is not true. And I don't want us to be a people that just sort of walk through worship. They can just go, oh, I like that song, I like this, but to go, I, I'm coming to this place after a week of, of, of worshiping God personally to now gather together with his people and say, God, I can praise you because you are or you have. I can praise you specifically for these things you're doing in my life and I come to give you something. So the second question I want us to look at is what are, the least, what are you least likely to give to God? What are we least likely to, to offer up to God? That's what he wants. He's not interested in, in the blind lamb. He's not interested in the one that's sick. He's interested in the one you're holding on to going, oh, I got my plan for this is better than yours. I'm still holding on to it. I find it interesting that the more we address the questions of what I praise God for and what I surrender to God, that that they often align. So we can realize some sin in ourselves and say, God, realize I've been holding on to this unforgiving spirit, this bitterness toward this specific individual to where even if they asked me to forgive them, I don't know that I would. But I have to surrender this 
because I praise you that you forgave me when I was unforgivable. That when I was still in my mess, you said, I, I love you. And so often what we surrender, we, we praise God for because he's given that to us. He's blessed us with that in, in, in immeasurable ways. So I want to leave these questions with you this morning, that every time we gather together, every time your your community group gathers, every time you wake up in the morning and go, I'm going to do my devotions this morning and talk to God, here's a way to start. God, how can I praise you this morning? And God, what are you asking me to give up that I'm still holding on to? Will you pray with me? God, I praise you for the privilege that it is to worship you. That you, a God of holiness, a God of immense uh, character and creativity and grace and mercy, you know my name. You know our, our, our troubles, you know our struggle, you know the details of our life, of what we're still holding on to. And God, you call us to surrender those things. God, allow us as we see you as greater and recognize your grace to us even more and more that we are more willing to give you the things that we're holding on to. God, help us to grasp worship anew this morning. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.